Hello, I'm Matt Carpenter, and this is the Good Life Podcast. Hello, we are here today at the Good Life Podcast with Dr. Alistair Roberts. Uh, Alistair is, uh, he got his PhD from Durham University in the UK. He is a scholar of biblical theology and ethics. He works for the Davenant Institute as well as he's written for Theopolis, which many in our uh, listening audience are familiar with. Also, Mere Orthodoxy, written for them as well. He has several podcasts, one that he is currently producing right now on the lectionary that is daily scripture readings where he will read from the Old and New Testament and give an overview of some of the deeper theological insights in both of those readings. So, Alistair, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you very much for the invitation. So, we'll begin just looking at your overall project, which, to, to me, reading from, because from, I've been reading you for several years now, emphasizes Christians uh, or the need for grow, Christians to grow in wisdom, just overall in wisdom. But before we get to that, no one comes out of their baptism with an understanding immediately of the deeper things of God. So what is your background uh, in, in starting out what in what was the tradition in which you were raised and and how did you go from where and how you were raised to where you are now? Yes, uh, I was raised in the Republic of Ireland where my parents were um, Reformed Baptist missionaries. My dad planted a church and I spent the first 16 years of my life over there before moving over to the UK and um, then living mostly in the context of Stoke-on-Trent for a few years and then on to Wales, St. Andrews, and then Durham. Um, my background was in a family when we were reading scripture in great depth from a very early age. My parents were always very committed to spending time with us in scripture, helping us to get a deep knowledge of scripture. And so by the time that it came for me to really put the pieces together, it felt like there was a great pile of tinder that had been built up. It was just needing a flame to set it alight. So particularly my mum, the amount of time that she spent reading with us was such a formative part of my background. Mm. Um, my dad as well has always been an avid reader. He had at the height of his library about 10,000 books. And along with that, he's always been someone who has been evangelistic about getting other people to read books particularly theology. So okay. he had a large library of his own and he was always recommending books to people, producing books as well. So during his mm. time in Ireland, he started a business in part to support his own ministry and in part to support missionaries and, and also our family. And so tentmaker publications, a one-man publishing operation grew out of that and I helped a lot with it, just doing um, work like proof checking and typesetting and um, lots of folding and collating, these sorts of things. So I've spent much of my childhood and early teen years around books. And then it was just a, it was, I enjoyed it at that time. I was always, always interested in words and in the way that books were made, things like that. It was in my late teens that I really became passionate about theology. And hmm. that was a moment of transition for me as well. I, had a number of years sort of backsliding and um, lots of tensions with my parents. And then it was in part through reading lives of the early Methodists that I was really sparked to think about the Christian life more seriously and what it meant to be committed to Christ. And so out of that, uh, 
was going to university at the time. I'd had a number of years of serious illness, long-term illness. And then at that point, I was studying maths and philosophy. I loved the subjects, but I found I was reading lots of theology on the bus to and fro and in my own time. And that was what I was really passionate about. So I ended up moving in that direction. And so that was my formation as a child and teenager. And since then, I've found a lot of my formation has just been within the context of the internet, in contexts of theological discussion and dispute, of um, the formation of um, having good interlocutors who will push and stretch you and challenge you in different ways. That's really been important for me. And for me, one of the key books that sparked my sparked my interest in biblical theology in particular was James Jordan's Through New Eyes, which just blew my mind when I read it for the second time. The first time I read it, it was just a bit too weird for me. So I put it to one side, returned to it a while later. And when I returned to it, it just clicked and lots of other things with it. I can relate to that. Uh, the, The first time I ever came across his book, I was in my early 20s and it was actually someone had had typed it out online this is back when the internet was in earlier stages in the early 2000s and they tried to reproduce the images through you know some type of web application drawing and and it was it was a struggle to read and i mean it, it can be a struggle to read anyway so then so yes, I, I can understand the first time going through it, there was more head scratching. There were a few times where I would see something I would think, that's really interesting, but I don't know where to put that. So I, I, I passed along, then I found it at a used bookstore. And yes, it, 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 was, it was like coming across a, a, a new planet that, had not, that I'd never heard or seen. And not only do I get to see it, I actually was able to, to walk in it a little bit. So, so that's, so, so you, you go from, from reading James Jordan, things open up, but then you, at some point trans, you, you, you went from being credo Baptist to pedo Baptist. So I, I know that certainly there are theological arguments for that. I, I, I was Credo Baptist, born and raised as well. But I've heard you say before, it's never solely intellectual arguments that cause someone to rethink what they're doing. So I'm not going to ask you what those are, but, but can, you, can you talk about that? Because I know a lot of people in our church and outside, they, they have this transition and it's easy sometimes to look back and think, well, I was just convinced by A, B, and C, when it's never that easy. So yep. go ahead. Yes, I think there are always a lot of things that shape our beliefs in different subjects. In part, it's, um, it can be a matter of plausibility structures. Um, there are lo- lots of different factors that make certain beliefs more or less plausible. So. Once you've, for instance, been reading the Bible in a particular way and seeing the coherence of the text across the Old and New Testament, the plausibility of pedo-baptism shoots up. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to straightforwardly switch to a pedo-baptist position. You could still hold on to a credo-baptist position, but it really shifts the balance of the arguments in favor and against. Other things like the way that you consider the tradition of the church and um the history of the way that these baptism has been viewed and practiced. Things like the way that you experience children within the life of the church, the way that you think about um, salvation. And for me, that was one of the issues that the question of assurance and how do you think about the way that um, we are addressed in scripture and in the sacraments. And for me, there was a key moment where I realized, or not so much just a moment, but a period of time when I realized the importance of a salvation that comes to me from without. So it's not based upon my personal experience. And I think there's 
a great danger for many people from a Baptist background of depending upon a certain experience that you've had. Now, having a certain experience of Christ's grace and goodness in your life is incredibly important, and everyone should have a knowledge of the reality of the work of the Holy Spirit and this sort of thing. The problem is when that becomes the basis upon which you're building everything else. That can be something that really causes problems if you're looking for that for security. Your own experience, your own feelings, they're not the most reliable things. And so it was the point of realizing that baptism, as with scripture, is a word of promise and grace addressed to me from without, that I am called to grasp hold of by faith and to find security, not so much in my own experience of a conversion or whatever like that, but of God's promise. And the point of faith is not so much the experience of faith within myself. That's a secondary important thing. But the most important thing is that faith reaches out to something outside of itself. It reaches out to God's promise and his grace. And that is presented to us, not just in the word, as we see in the gospel presented in um, the gospels and in the epistles, and also as we read it in the Old Testament, Christ's seen in the veiled way that we find him in the Old Testament narrative, but also in the sacraments, where the grace of Christ is addressed to us in a very particular and individualized way. And I think for me also, it was other things that changed the plausibility balance, things like realizing the importance of the body. Um, and our bodies are addressed in a way that we can often forget that the very basis of our identity is not just in our minds or our wills or um, our choices, but it's in something deeper than that, just the very existence of being a body that people can act upon. And so before I had any um, will or any subjectivity or any agency, I was a body and I was a person who was addressed in my body as a body. And that is something that I think baptism recalls us to in certain respects. Baptism is a statement that my body is claimed by Christ. Our, my body is marked out for resurrection on the last day. My body is a place that is no longer just my own to use as I will. It's My body is to be the limbs and organs of Christ. It's also to be the temple of the Holy Spirit and to be treated in that sort of way. And so just as we might think about a child who's adopted into a family, the point of the adoption is not so much just something that happens that moment in time, um, nor is it just looking back to something that's happened previously and sealing that, although it, it is both of those things to some extent. Rather, it has as its aim the inclusion of that child in the fullness of the life of their new adoptive family. And so baptism is always forward-looking. Baptism looks forward to the baptized person's full entry into the life and enjoyment of fellowship with God and his people. And the more I realized that, that it was a promise addressed to me, something that I needed to take hold of by faith and live out. And the point was not so much had something happened in the past that this is bearing witness to, but I mean, what happened in the past was not so much in my experience. It was the work of Christ, but right. I'm being included in his life. And as I grasp hold of the promise extended to me in this baptism and live out the meaning of my baptism by faith, I can find great blessing and assurance. And I think this was also realizing this, this was the strength of the Reformation understanding of baptism. It's an unsinkable ship, as Luther would call it, call it or the idea that you can always return to your baptism, that baptism is never something you outgrow. It's not like some infusion of grace, like... You know, being fueled with some grace and then after a period of time the gas of grace is running out in the tank and right. you maybe have to go to um, get some other source from penance or something like that that's not how it works rather we can always return to the promises that were declared to us in our baptisms and baptism is not looking back to some event that I had in my um, conversion experience that I'm declaring publicly it's looking back to what happened in Christ and I'm baptized into his death and his burial in anticipation of sharing in his resurrection. And so for me, um, that shift was part of a broader constellation of shifts that were happening in my theology and particularly focusing upon 
a recognition of the grace of God addressing me from without. So th that there's a lot that that you said right there. I can tell you, you you've thought about this more than most people probably have, and a couple of things that really jump out to me is, is your emphasis, and I know that this is part of your emphasis in, in all of your writing, the importance of the body. In Genesis, we're told that God made man a body and soul. And in our kind of uh, modern, reformed circles, at least in some of them, the idea of the body is, well, we take that verse to say, actually, uh, what Moses meant to write was that we're just souls, and, and the body was just an extra inclusion in that. But, but this is, baptism is not something that, that only happens in, invisibly. There is the actual, the physical gift of, of water that is given by God to bring someone in to the body, to, to, to make someone a part of this community where God's Spirit dwells. So you also mentioned there the, the difference, and for me this was significant in going from being credo-baptist to paedo-baptist, was the idea of this is not simply the first of many commands that I have to follow. What, you know, that, that, that's a common thing that, that baptism is simply, it, it's obeying one command and then there's a whole lot more that you have to go to. Whereas this is, this is a gift. This is just a gift. And, and especially when someone is baptized as a covenant child, they have nothing to do with that. Uh, you know, they, 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 it's all that child. <laughs> the child is, is, is a gift from God manifested as his love to him or her. So that, that's a, a wonderful picture of, of grace in general. Because otherwise, if you don't have that, it, it, if covenant baptism is not given, then that child is left with some rather unpleasant alternatives. I mean, and our theology has to go one of several ways. I mean, I, it's either that we have to develop an age of accountability of some variety, or, you know, in, in some cases, we have to just say that, that there's, that, that the child is kind of maybe halfway in, uh, and halfway out because they're they come to church but they're not fully converted. You know, so so there's there's not as many positive, joyful options for the child who's not actually brought in to the covenant officially in baptism. So, anyway, I don't know if you have any any additional things to add on that, but yes, I think it's important just to recognize also. If we focus so much upon baptism and what qualifies someone for baptism, we tend to see it so very much as the sort of approved stage. Something has gone through the assembly line of conversion, and at the end you have the approved sticker that's placed upon them. And that's to miss the fact that baptism is so fundamental to lifelong discipleship. And it's one of the points I think the, the Reformed tradition has really emphasised, that we never get beyond our baptism. We're always returning to it. There's no stage at which our baptism ceases to be efficacious and valuable in our lives. The promises held out to us are things that every single day we should be reminding ourselves of. And that's something I think, just thinking about the importance of the body, that can be helpful. That when I think about um, my body, it can be very easy to look at myself in the mirror in the morning and feel, oh, I'm not looking too great today, and <laughs> I'm feeling my mortality, I'm feeling my weakness I'm maybe feeling the guilt and the shame that comes with the body because our bodies are, we tend to think about 
shame and guilt very much as things of our mind. But people feel these things deeply in their bodies. They feel trauma. They feel um, the shame for what people have done to their bodies or what they have done with their bodies. They feel the way that people's gaze um, judges them or assesses them or the way that they're objectified, whatever it is. Our bodies are sites of deep feeling and struggle and feeling of the reality of death and sin. And so if God's grace has not addressed the realm of the body, then something's wrong. But in baptism and in the Lord's Supper, God's grace is addressed quite directly to our bodies. And I found that a very comforting and encouraging thought. And then like with, um, if you think about a situation of adoption, the adoption is constantly being worked out. The child is growing in their relationship with their parents throughout the entirety of their lives. And in the same way, um, the reality of our baptism is something that needs to be lived out every single day in a growth towards ever more maturity. And so um, it's one of the things also that we can think about our baptism very much as an event in the past, something that refers to converts, perhaps. And in the process, I think we miss the way that baptism knits together a number of different things. So you mentioned the way that baptism and the body, not just the individual body, but the body of Christ. Baptism is something that makes us part of a community. We're all baptized into one body. And um, it's also something that is a sort of sacrificial event. Our bodies are washed just as the sacrifices would be washed. We are we present our bodies, plural, as a living sacrifice, singular. Um, and that's something that the whole church expresses. And with that, I think we can also see the way that it brings together the body as the individual body. It brings together the, the corporate body as we all recognize each other within the single body of Christ. And that mutual recognition, I think, is an important part of what's going on in baptism. We're constantly reinforcing each other in our knowledge of ourselves as baptized and encouraging people to live out their baptisms just as they're encouraging us in the same task. Along with that, there's also a knitting into the story of scripture. And so I've been, in my treatment of baptism, I've very much been trying to bring those different elements together. So when we think about the story of scripture, we can often read the Bible as if it's a book we pull off a shelf and we think about this story relating to people um, two, three thousand years ago and what happened in their lives and their communities and their histories. And that is part of what's taking place. But it's also, as the Apostle Paul makes very clear in various places, our story. These people were our fathers who were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, for instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And he can talk about the story of Christ as a story of baptisms. We see this in the Gospel of Mark as well. Christ has the baptism in the Jordan. Uh, we see that in all the Gospels. In the Gospel of Mark, it also speaks about his baptism that he is awaiting of his death, um, that he has a baptism to be baptized with. This is an ordeal, the trial that he will experience. And then there's the promise of a further baptism, which is the baptism of Pentecost, the baptism that he will give of the Holy Spirit and fire. So we've got these three different baptisms associated with Christ, his baptism in the Jordan, preparing him for his mission, the baptism of his death, and the baptism of the church at Pentecost. And in many ways, our baptism is knitting us into, making us part of the story of all these previous baptisms, particularly the baptisms of Christ. So we are baptized into his baptism. We are anointed for ministry with him in the Jordan. We are baptized into his death so that we pass through death into new life with him and then we are also baptized with his holy spirit as the result of pentecost and so we can see that and then we can also look further afield and see baptism is a replaying of the story of the red sea crossing it's the replaying of the story of the flood it's the replaying of the story of the creation the world is created out of water water above and beneath, divided, land taken out of the water. And we can see it also in stories like Elijah or Elisha, other stories like that. All of these stories have baptism as part of them in some way. And we can think about the story of um, the priests being prepared for their mission. And when they're appointed for their mission, they are washed, their bodies are washed. 
And this is, again, something that's part of our baptism. Our bodies are washed in order that we might be acting as priests, as a royal priesthood and a holy nation. So bringing together our personal bodies, the body of the community, and also the body of the text, that we're not just living, uh, thinking of some hopeful parallels with the story, but we're actually inhabiting the story. It is something that we're embodying, as it were, um, even more so. But if you think about what is a, a Shakespearean text, what is a Shakespearean play? Is it a book you pull down off a shelf and read in a high school English class? Or is it something that you see primarily on the stage as it's performed and lived out? In the same way, scripture primarily exists as it's lived out, read in the community and embodied within its life as the Psalms are sung, as we recount the histories, as we exhort each other with its words. And that's where we see the scripture. And baptism is in many ways an entrance into the scripture as an inhabited word. So with all that you've said there, all, all that, that, that we've discussed, you are bringing a perspective on scripture that is something well above and beyond the older grammatic historical method of interpretation, which is what most people, most church members, and even many ministers uh, are, that, that's what they're accustomed to. So we read scripture, and it is, it's like the Shakespeare play that you, you take down, and, and maybe you have read Macbeth 13 times. But it's only something that you take down and you read because you like these different characters and they, you know, they're interesting and evil and you know it's a good story. But then you put it back. But the way you're talking about this is, is something fresh and alive. And, and we all would say that, that, that the body of Christ is ongoing. And that the canon of Scripture certainly is closed, but those two are not mutually exclusive of one another. So for the new Christian, or, or let's just say the young Christian, who is hearing this and says, uh, I don't know what to do with all this. How, how can I see it the way that, that he's seeing it? I may not be able to develop that wonderful accent, but I still want to be able to read the Bible that way. So, you know, what would you say to that person when it comes to interpreting, and not just interpreting can sound a little bit dry, but to, to read Scripture with, an, well, to, to, to use the name of the book, Through New Eyes, to, 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 to look at that, how, how would one start down that path? I know we'll never arrive, but how do we at least start? Yep. And just on a note of the word interpreting, I think if we think about some of the other ways that we use that term, it needn't be as dry as at first glance it can seem. If we think about an actor, an actor interprets a part. Um, that interpretation is not so much um, writing some essay about the particular role that they're playing. It's actually playing the role. Um, and right. when we're interpreting scripture, ideally we're, moving towards something similar. We're interpreting the scripture as we seek to live it out, as we seek to embody what it means to go forward from that text in our present situations. And so the text addresses us in a way that we have to attend to where it's coming from and the context from which it's speaking, these sorts of things, but never just ends there. It's always moving us forward and our act of interpreting will drive us into actual practical communal action. Um, beyond that, I would say that the best way to learn to read scripture is to spend time with other people who are reading it and people who are expert readers. That's really how I've learned to read the scripture. Pay a lot of attention to people who are expert readers and just watch them doing it. Now, very often we can look for people to tell us what the text means as if the answer is the most important thing. But the answers are important. But what can be even more important is learning the process by which people arrive at an understanding of the text, so that through learning that process, we can come to understand it ourselves. Now, that's one of the reasons 
we're given pastors and we're given teachers in the church that not that they can do the work for us, but that they can help us to move ourselves towards the position where we understand these things, not just because they've told us that this is the meaning of the text, but we can see how they arrived at that meaning and follow their lead and go into other texts, even without their guidance at a point, and realize we can follow the lessons that they've taught us in how to read the text and read these other texts. And so for me, it's following people like Peter Lightheart, James Jordan, and lots of other commentators that I read on a regular basis. Those have been the ones that have helped me to read the text well. Reading alongside fellow readers, um, hearing their questions, having their challenges and their disagreements with my readings, that's incredibly helpful. Realising those questions that you never thought to ask of your readings, realising what assumptions you're bringing to the text, that can be helpful. I think one way I've found, one thing I found very important is to stop asking questions of the text um, in my initial approach to it. So very often when we come to the text, we have a sort of mental list of questions that we're bringing to the text. And those questions, which can be really burning questions for us, they can be the most pressing issues of the day. What does the Bible say on this issue of sexual ethics? Or what does the Bible say on this issue of politics, whatever it is. That is often a very unhelpful way to approach the scripture. A far more helpful way can be put those questions to one side and try to listen to the text. What questions emerge from the text itself? And so read through a passage seven times out loud, slowly and steadily, and just listen to the text. What patterns do you notice? Where is the center of this passage? What do you notice about the pace at which it's told? Um, how are characters characterized? Is it through their speech? Is it through the way other characters speak about them? Is it through their actions? Um, think about the way that, where have I heard this before? That's a good question to ask of scripture. Have I heard, this is an odd expression to use in this context, where have I heard it before? Or what expression would I be expecting here and don't find here? Those sorts of questions are, it's about the art of paying attention. And I think that's something that as Bible readers, we can often lack because we've come with our questions and we're trying to force those upon the text and interrogate the text to get its answers from it and not actually listening to what the text itself has to tell us. And so for me, that art of paying attention is the most important thing to learn. And one illustration I found very helpful in thinking about how to read the text is a um, few actually um thinking about it as doing a jigsaw puzzle when you're doing a jigsaw puzzle you're paying attention both to the structure of pieces and the images upon the pieces so first of all you see put all the pieces out you splay them out and then you start to turn them all over because you want to have a sense of what's there in front of you and then you start to gather the edge pieces particularly the corner pieces that gives you a sense of the shape of the text and then of the puzzle. And then you start to cluster pieces together according to the image. So all the sky pieces go in a big pile and you think, okay, I'll get to those later on when lots of other pieces are put in place and I have a sense of where they fit. And not tackling those straight away can be helpful. I mean, if same way with reading scripture, Revelation is the sky pieces. Leave that to later <laughs> on. Once right. you've got the rest of the text, you'll have a sense of where that fits and the pieces will be a lot less threatening. And then as you're going through that process, you'll start to see smaller clusters. I don't know where this piece fits exactly, but I know it fits over there. And I know that it's connected to one of these other dozen pieces. And so then you start to pay attention to the shape a bit more closely. Um, how might this interlock with other parts? And so you're asking questions on these different levels of the text. And often you'll find that the structural and literary characteristics of the text will be really helpful for helping you to understand the theological meaning. Now, many people, I think, have seen the grammatical historical method as equivalent with a really minimalistic reading of scripture. And I don't think it needs to be that. Rather, it can be something that is a chastening and a clarifying and a directing force for our reading of scripture, which 
goes beyond just the basic surface of the text. And so one of the concerns, I think, that the Reformation had that gave rise to an emphasis upon the grammatical historical hermeneutic was the concern that you had these Roman Catholic readings that were talking about the symbolism of the text and taking patristic readings, and the text became a sort of wax nose. You can make the text mean whatever you wanted. You could see the seven sacraments. You could see prayers to Mary and the saints and all these sorts of things could be confected into the text. I mean, it's not there, but you can work it into there with enough elaborate symbolism. And the emphasis upon grammatical historical exegesis is about the discipline of the text. If the text is going to be authoritative, We don't want to treat the text as a sort of ventriloquist dummy that we're projecting our voices into. We want to hear the text itself speak to us. And so the grammatical historical exegesis approach is to, okay, we're going to be very rigorous in thinking about what do these words mean in their original historical context? And read that way, um, how does this apply to us today? And so that approach is very much aimed against this uh, excessive symbolic approach that does not have a discipline of being driven by the text. It's imposing things and importing things into the text. Whereas that approach has often been associated with the sort of minimalistic reading of scripture, just the facts and nothing more. Um, When we think about the reading of scripture more carefully and actually pay attention to the text, we've realized the text is doing a lot more than just giving us the bare details. It's giving us symbolic frameworks, typological associations, and these things are delivered through literary structure. So for instance, if you're reading through the book of Genesis, you'll often see panels, which are two passages or chapters side by side that need to be read alongside each other. And you can see all these themes and parallels and juxtapositions between them. So an example would be Genesis chapters 18 and 19, where you have the story of Abraham visited by the three angels. He's seated by the tent door in the middle of the day and they come and then he bows to the ground, runs out to meet them, bows to the ground, invites them in for a meal. And then there's the, after they have the meal, there's the promise of the child. Um, and Sarah is made fruitful and he intercedes for Sodom, etc. Then the next chapter, two angels visit Sodom. Lot is seated in the um, gate of Sodom in the evening and he bows his face to the ground, invites them in for a meal and they have a meal. And then it ends up very differently. Rather than the barren woman being made fruitful, Lot's wife turns into a pillar of salt. So it's the incredible image of barrenness. And that invites you to read those two stories alongside each other, to juxtapose the characters of Lot and Abraham. What's the difference between these characters? What can we learn by that? Have a similar thing in chapters 37 and 39 with Joseph and 38, which is in the middle with Judah. And so when you read those characters alongside each other, you see similar themes, temptation by a woman in the case of Tamar and also in the case of Potiphar's wife. Um, tokens of recognition presented, both in Mm. the case of the story of Joseph and the presentation of um, the the bloody tunic that suggests that he's been killed, and then also in the story of Tamar presenting the tokens of Judah um, that prove that she's more righteous than he. And so it's a literary structure, and we're paying attention to the grammatical and historical realities of the text, But what we're learning in the process is the text is doing more than just giving us a bare history. It's giving us a juxtaposition of two characters. Now, that's one thing to notice. I think the other thing is typology. So typology can often be seen in terms of what we might think of as melody and counter-melody. So when you listen to a piece of music, you can listen to the melody. And then you can see a counter-melody alongside that. When they're played together, harmony is produced. Now, when we're reading scripture, we'll often see the same thing. We're reading a particular story and we think, this is interesting. I've heard this somewhere before. This Mm. reminds me of something. And then you listen to that other text alongside it and things start to produce a sort of harmony. So if you're reading the beginning of Matthew's gospel, for instance, you're reading about this story of Joseph, the son of Jacob, who's having dreams, who's leading his people down into Egypt for safety. And you think, I've heard this story before. It's 
a story that's very familiar. It's the story of Genesis. And now the story of of, um, Joseph, the son of Jacob, is the story of Joseph, the, the husband of Mary and the father of Christ. But in the Old Testament, it's Joseph, the brother of the twelve. And uh, and in that reading alongside each other, we're invited to juxtapose these characters. So in what ways is Joseph like his namesake in the Old Testament? In what ways is Christ like Joseph? In what ways is the story of Christ's birth and nativity and all the things that surround that like the story of the early Exodus? And as we read the story on, we'll see all sorts of parallels that start to emerge. Now, that's just reading the story as caref- carefully as literature. It's not trying to impose or force some symbolism upon it. It's just being attentive to what's there right. in the text itself. And so the text is often doing this quite obviously, and it's drawing attention to it. And really what we want to do is to be those who are engaging in the sort of grammatical historical reading, but not a minimalistic one. And so we're taking the strength of a patristic reading where you're trying to see the symbolism, when you're trying to see Christ in the whole of the scriptures, but you're also doing that with the discipline of the text. The text places limits upon you and the text directs your attention. And you don't just force this upon the text. You have to draw the information out of the text. So a a few as you were talking, it reminded me of really that, that, that balance that is wisely given to us by our Reformed fathers. Because on one hand, I, I know of and have been a part of uh, churches in the past who turned grammatical, historical interpretation of Scripture into that minimalism you were speaking of. So consequently, for a time, I was drawn. The the first people I ever came across who didn't do that, once I started studying outside the the confines of where I'd been raised, were Roman Catholics, uh, you know, modern Roman Catholics. Uh, And and it actually, uh, thankfully, it was men like um, Peter Lightheart and others uh, who kind of allowed me to see it's possible to read Scripture as inspired literature, not just as a theological me- mechanistic system of you turn this knob, you do this, you apply the fuel, and you crank the engine, and now you are saved, you are a Christian, and as long as you confess your sin, you know, you know, all, all of that. But on the other hand, at, when I was a pastor, we I had a church member uh, well over a decade ago who, at at one point, said, "I've I've been studying some great incarnational theology. Are you familiar with that?" And I said, "Yes." I said, and he said, "You know." And, and I'm about convinced by this one author that I'm reading that homosexuality is actually biblical because it allows us to incarnate our our desires that we have. And I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. I, I said, well, we need to back up here. And, you know, long story short, his, the book that he was reading was taking a good, t- a, 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 something that's true, uh, theology of the goodness of the body, but twisting it and distorting it in a wicked direction, and which in, in essentially is the same type of thing it, that the worst of medieval exegesis through symbolism was doing. It, it, it's taking what you want, man-made developments of doctrine that have all these accretions from years and decades and even centuries and and it's it's forcing them onto the text so we do that the same you know with different things today even in you know our evangelical liberal evangelical circles uh, at, at times and it's not just liberal anyone because our hearts like finding 
ways around confessing our sin. We don't like, you know, seeing our sin. We manufacture things that aren't there. So, so, so it, it's helpful to, for me to hear you talk about the good of that, that balance between appreciating the grammar and the history while also appreciating that scripture is literature. True, I mean, literature in its best sense. So, I think I've, one thing I've found helpful is recognizing the way that people will use the idea that scripture is literature and methods of interpretation as a way to avoid the force of scripture. So people interpret away the force of the text or they try and evacuate its meanings or just place enough doubt upon them that, okay, we've got these texts we can line up against homosexuality and uh, homosexual practice and we can knock each one down one by one or at least throw enough doubt upon each one of them one by one that we don't have to pay attention to them. Now, that is not how we're supposed to read scripture. We're supposed to read scripture by paying attention to it and by following its guidance wherever it leads. And so I think one of the things that I'm constantly encouraging people to do is not to take their bearings in studying the scripture from the arguments that we have with other people. Rather, our bearings should be taken from the scripture itself. Follow the scripture's leading and see where that takes you. And often it will take you a lot further than the arguments that you have with other people. Even if you're trying to maintain the truth, you'll find that there's only so far that you can defend it against someone who is really determined to reject it. Because scripture directs us in a number of ways that can't be defended with absolute certainty against anyone who has a hostile interpretation or approach to the text or who wants to dismiss the text. It's just not possible in many cases. But if we are attentive to the text, the text will lead us a very long way. And so my encouragement to people is just spend more time with the text, a lot less time fixating upon the arguments. And that is it just leads to a healthier approach to the text, I think, more generally um, than people who are going to the text constantly to try and win the latest argument they're in. Right. Scripture is not an encyclopedia of proof texts, in other words. Yep. So, and and then that will give us some shift, uh, uh, an on ramp, an on ramp to shift into to one more line of of discussion, and that has to do with the general concept of wisdom for the Christian. So, you know, so we've talked about interpretation of Scripture. We've talked about, you know, one element being baptism and, and just a sampling of how that is seen in a broader perspective than what, you know, all, many of us were accustomed to probably growing up, if we even were accustomed to hearing about that at all. So you've written before, though, about the... Wisdom versus the, what some would say, the biblical worldview system that we currently have. And, and I know you've, you've also talked about j- just the term biblical itself with a little trademark symbol next to biblical uh, that I found liberating, actually, because as... Protestants, we we rightfully uh, claim that we don't have to follow the Pope in whatever his latest ex cathedra declaration is. However, often you can have a minister or you know different ministers who will stand up and say. Uh, this is a, a stereotype, so this, I don't have it's not one particular example, but thus saith the Lord, libertarianism is scriptural. It is the biblical way. Walk therein. This is the old path of Jeremiah, <laughs> or something like that. So, so talk about wisdom and what are the 
the, what is the correlation that it has, but also what is the difference between wisdom and the biblical worldview system that's really come around probably in the last 20 years or so? Yeah, so I think oh, worldview is used in a number of different senses. And so I've tended to focus upon the more dominant ways that it gets used within the culture. There are forms of biblical worldview teaching that I wouldn't have that much of an issue with. Um, so just as a um, right proviso at the beginning, I, I think when we're talking about worldview, often what I'm thinking about is this whole prepackaged system of thought that declares itself to be biblical or the Christian way of viewing these sorts of things. And it gives you potted answers for all these different questions. It tells you in a couple of sentences what's wrong with all these different opponent theologies. And it there are a number of issues of what, with what's going on. Sometimes the issue is that it takes a primarily sort of medicinal approach to um, the world. So you've got all these hostile and unchristian belief systems going out there, and you need to take your shots against them. And so the important thing is that you develop immunity against all these false teachings. Now, you don't raise healthy kids on medicine. Ideally, what you need is to give them a solid meal, to give them something that's a healthy, rounded diet. And so ideally, what we're trying to do is not give people a, a worldview system. We're trying to give them a deep knowledge of the world. Um, so not the worldview. The, we're trying to give them an exposure to the world that will enable them to speak with a Christian understanding to all different areas of life. Now, that's not given in a sort of potted system that can be transported from one place to another very easily. Uh, wisdom approach is very attentive to the specific situations that someone can find themselves in. It's a lot more attentive to um, those sorts of factors. You can also think about it as the difference between thinking that there is an abstract system that has all of the answers to your problems and thinking and recognizing the importance of practice and developed skill so it's like if you give someone a recipe book and even if they read through it several times, have it by their bedside table and read <laughs> through it a few times, it's not going to make them an expert cook. The person who's the expert cook is the person who's practiced working with the ingredients, has really gained a proficiency in that and has had the guidance of the book to direct them along the side. And that's There's really how our knowledge. Exactly. And, and when we're reading scripture, it should really be like that. It shouldn't be just this scripture itself warns against this approach of treating the scripture very much as words apart from actions. But yet we're trying to practice and um, interpret it in that fuller sense that we discussed earlier. When we're reading the text, we're not being given a prepackaged system. We're being given understandings that we need to relate to our specific situation in ways that are attentive both to the text and to what it can bring to our situation and to the situation that we're bringing it to. So when I'm thinking about my culture, uh, cultural setting, I need to be very attentive to what makes people tick. What uh, are the institutions that we're working within? Um, what are my habits? What are the stories that orient me? What are the practices that have formed me? And then you're trying to speak Christian truth into that, which takes a lot more wisdom, improvisation, prudence, discretion, and these sorts of things. Whereas I think worldview was very attractive for many evangelicals because it saved them from having to do those sorts of things. It, and evangelicals have always, I think, one of the strengths of evangelicals has been a sort of activism, that we want to get out there, we want to do the Lord's work, and we want to be practical Christians. And that's great. That's what we should want to do. But to be people who are doing practice well, we need to also be people who spend time in reflection and deliberation. And so wisdom is very much about those stages of reflection, thinking about what is good, and deliberation, thinking about what is right. Um, so if we're thinking about what is good, we're thinking about something like the value of charity. What does it mean to be charitable? hospitable people. If we're thinking about deliberation, it's how can I actually be charitable and hospitable to the homeless people in my neighborhood? 
And that's a different sort of question. I mean, do I invite them into my house to stay with me and my family? That may not be the most prudent course of action, but um, hospitality and charity are things that should be expressed in our practice in some way or other. And so that process of wisdom, I think, opens up the gap in part between the good and the right, recognizing that it's good to do these things and the question of how exactly we should go about them. A lot more attentiveness to context, a lot more appreciation of our responsibility that we can be taught these things, but ultimately the responsibility comes to us in the process of deliberation and reflection and then practice. How do we metabolize these truths? And then the other thing that you mentioned, for instance, about libertarianism and the way that a pastor might teach that from the pulpit is recognizing the difference between different modes of speech. So the pastor who's speaking from the pulpit is speaking with a way he's presenting the authority of Christ's word to his flock. And so if he's presenting something that is his own political opinion from the pulpit with the same sort of authority, something's gone wrong there. And so in part, what the pastor is doing is helping the congregation to go through processes of thought, to think about how this authoritative word of the gospel might relate to practical situations in their life while recognizing along the way the translation from that which is very forceful and authoritative to those things that are more prudential and um, a matter of careful discrimination and discernment, which don't come with the same force as the things that come further back that stage. Um, and so a lot of wisdom is about recognizing that movement and the way that we undertake that in a circumspect manner. And I was not saying specifically that a pastor should be muzzled in day-to-day -day life, that that was not my point. But just anyone, because in, in our, again, conservative, reformed circles, it is, you know, libertarianism is, is where many might venture, okay? So if we were living in, say, New England, uh, or over where you are, it might be uh, more common to for someone to talk about uh, you know socialism or you know it's something closer to to Marxism than from the pulpit. But either way, it, it's been helpful for me to to see that Christianity is not an ideology, the way that it is. The, the way that there are so many other ideologies that vie for our attention because those are really dangerous. And whenever someone grabs on to, latches on to an ideology, and even when they turn Christianity into that, which I think you can see in some of the, the more radical Puritan movements, uh, and you, know, you have, your area saw some of the, some of the worst <laughs> of that, quite a few years back, but it can, it, it threatens the peace of a society when, when enough people become ide ideologically motivated in their choices. I think a terminology that Jordan Peterson has introduced me to that I find very helpful on this is ideological possession. When people are functioning in terms of an ideology, and they're not actually relating to actual persons, they're not actually relating to specific situations. They're thinking out of this grand narrative that encompasses the whole of the world, and everything gets forced into this narrative. One of the things that I think a wisdom approach helps us to recognize is we have no grand narrative of that ideological kind. We have, in the narrative of the the gospel is a rooted, grounded narrative. It's a narrative of something that happened in um, the over the course of many centuries and millennia in primarily um, the Near East, and it's something that relates to our lives. We become part of that narrative, but that narrative is not a grand system into which everything gets forced. Um, and there's a lot of uh, room for thinking about different ways that that can apply in different situations. 
So we're not treating Christianity as an ism. Um, we're recognizing what it means to be Christian and what it means to be wisely political, for instance, in one situation may not be the same as what it looks like in another. So I, for instance, am quite uh, appreciative of the monarchy over here in the UK. That doesn't mean that you, the US should have a, a monarchy. Um, being uh, in favor of the um, royal family, for instance, in the UK, doesn't mean that you have to support that sort of thing in every single country. You're paying attention to the local situations and right. conditions and recognizing that things change from place to place. And you're relating, I think, particularly in our situation, where so many people's thinking and lives are lived on social media, you're not dealing with people as abstractions and ideas. You're dealing with them as specific persons made in the image of God with particular contexts and needs. And ideology can get in the way of that. It can make it very hard to be attentive to people and to recognize how they don't fit. Um, and what you'll find, the more time you spend with people, most people don't fit the tidy ideologies. They stick out in all sorts of unusual ways. And we're, we're trying to recognize that. And that's part of what wisdom involves, to appreciate those things that make situations particular and dis distinct, and then relate with attentiveness a story that is the fundamental narrative of Christ, trying to improvise in a faithful manner that story within our context. And so when you're improvising, you're paying attention to what information your context is giving you, what other people are giving you, and you're trying to respond to that in a way that is faithful, in character, in a way that follows on with the plot that has happened beforehand and all these sorts of things. And in many ways, that's what we're called to do as Christians, to be those who are attentive to, in the case of the ingredients and the recipe book, you're learning from the recipe book and recognizing the ingredients that you have in front of you and being adept with using those and to make a good meal out of those. Now, maybe mixed up a few metaphors at various points along here, but hopefully it makes it clear that we're talking about something that is a lot more, um, a lot less cookie cutter and right. requires a lot more attentiveness to people. You're not seeing people just as potential converts. You're not just seeing people as vehicles for ideologies and philosophies. You're seeing people in their distinctiveness. And you, what you're trying to do is elicit that distinctiveness from people. What makes this person tick? Rather than trying to force people into an ideological box that you know how to knock people in that ideological box down. That's not how it works. Um, ideally, we're trying to win people over by being attentive to their specific situations, their needs, their concerns, their questions. And then with a deep knowledge and acquaintance with the gospel and the faith, being able to speak in an attentive and sensitive way to that specific issue that might be driving them, their concerns and their um, struggles. And that requires, I think, a lot more skill, but that skill is a lot more valuable than just having a rigid and a technique that is very rigid and brittle and I don't think has the adaptiveness to be able to deal with actual human beings and their circumstances. I agree. I do have to say that after the last few presidents that we've had over here, my appreciation for your monarchy has gone up exponentially, particularly with the lovely lady who's seated on the throne and has been for quite a while. It's a, it's, I can't help but, but admire her more and more. But that is, seriously, that is something that it's it's a helpful lesson to 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 hear that we should not force people into neat boxes because they're they're made in the image of God, and each one has a soul and a body, and as Lewis said, will one day stand before God and will either be a creature of astounding beauty and loveliness or something that we would shudder to ever look upon. And, and we have no idea. Uh, I think another thing, 
another thing about it is recognizing, as you say, we are all people made in the image of God and we're all inhabiting whatever ideology people have. They're still inhabiting God's world. world. They yes. may they may not recognize it. They may not admit it. But it's still the case they're inhabiting God's world. And so we have so right. much in common with them. They're trying to work against the grain of reality. And yet they will constantly, despite themselves, recognize that reality it, because it insistently comes through. And so what we're trying to do often is draw people attention to what they already know on some level and yet are trying to resist and recognizing the world, the ingredients of reality are playing in our favor. It's not just that we have the authoritative recipe book that we have to dictate to people from. We recognize that that recipe book is dealing with the reality of the ingredients of the world. Yeah. And so the more that we paid attention to it and used it in our training in how to use the ingredients of the world, the more we'll be equipped to speak insightfully to people who are struggling to do so because they're resisting um, the instructions, as it were. Now, it's limited to think about the scripture as a recipe book, but I find it a helpful right. illustration as far as it goes. Well, the, uh, when you're accustomed to thinking in metaphors, that, that, that one works well on several levels. So, Alistair, I really appreciate you taking time to, to, to talk today. Uh, this has been... A blessing. It's it's given me a lot to think about now, and uh, for people can if they want to read your work, I know they can go to your website alistairadversaria.com, and I'll I'll post a link to that uh, in in the the notes for for this. And also, you've written a book with Andrew Wilson. Is that that his last name? Okay, called yes. Echoes of Echoes of Exodus, and if, if all of you are interested in in going a little bit further, you know, Alistair talked about reading with someone who is what well, he said a master, uh, one who has experience. I would he did not because he's humble uh, say put his name in there, but I would say reading. Echoes of Exodus is a good place to start in, in trying to look at Scripture this way, but also his uh, podcast on different the biblical readings of the Old and New Testament from the lectionary. Uh, Alistair, which lectionary is that that you are using? It's the 18A Book of Common Prayer from okay. um, 2019. Um, it's okay. available online. Right. It, it's online for free. But if you, again, if you want to just get an idea, it's not very long, usually uh, 30 minutes or less, and I've benefited from it. So, so check that out. And anyway, so thank you again. We appreciate it. And, um, and may the Lord bless you and all of your work. Thank you.